I want this football <laughs> library that we're now in, Paul McPartland, to be the Brian Glanville Football Library because football <sighs> literature really wouldn't exist without Glanville's literary ambitions because he was a novelist. Mark makes clear that he's a novelist trapped in a football journalist body. Um, That's right, yeah. And in the 60s, did you pick up a, a novel called Goalkeepers Are Different? And I think it was serialised in, in the weekly football magazine Goal as well when I was growing up. We mentioned Rise of Jerry Logan, which was based on Danny Blanchflower's uh, life. And he's written loads, like 20 novels. Yeah, yeah. And I read some of his short stories, which When Saturday Comes collected as the man behind the goal. And it, yeah, have, yeah. You, have you not been tempted to write football fiction yourself? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I, I think that's a very challenging field to get into football fiction. And I think there's a very... You know, uh, Niche market there that that, that would appeal to. Uh, uh, so no, it's not. It's not. It's not something I consider at this stage. But hey, you know, you can learn in life. You don't realise any possibilities, do you? Well, I a couple of months ago, I thought it'd be great to write something about the footballer and the fan, and then I've realised very quickly it became a, a novel, which I've started yeah. writing. It's a guy who goes to watch football on Boxing Day. Unfortunately, it is not like your trip to St James's Park on Boxing Day of '86. <laughs> of which more shortly. The club has a, a really bad game, and Moz, Moz Winter, named after Morrissey, uh, uploads, Winter is in Henry Winter, uploads a video and says, Mr Chairman, you know where I am. And the chairman says, yeah, I've sacked the manager, you're on. Come in tomorrow for a meeting. And so um, the journalist says, Mr Winter, you have no qualifications and you're a fan. What do you have? And um, Moz kind of pauses, sips his water and just goes, Balls. And that is the start of the book. So I'm in the middle of writing about it. Would you want to manage Everton Football Club yourself, having been on the terraces for 60 years? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, that's a really loaded question, Johnny. Uh, in, a, in an ideal dream world, yes. Uh, but having seen what a manager has to endure, and you know, having if you'd asked that question in the 1980s, I think the answer would have been definitely yes, because managers were, were not under the same level of scrutiny as they are now. But you know, with the uh, with the advent of social media, with the various avenues where people can can destroy your reputation, following every every wouldn't want to be be the focus of media attention like that. So uh, if the job had been offered in the 70s or 80s, uh, definitely yes, it was offered now. No. Mike Calvin's book, Living on the Volcano, opens with all the, a list of all the things a manager is supposed to be. And it's more or less social worker meets teacher meets school caretaker. And there's a moment, I think it's Carl Robinson, a fan goes up to him and says, why on earth are you smiling? You lost this weekend. And Carl says, well, I can't even enjoy playing on the swing with my kid. It's, just, it's brutal and it's unfair. But if anyone can handle the pressure of the hot seat, it is self-proclaimed football nerd... And Liverpool resident Rafael Benitez. I think one of the good things about, about Benitez is the fact that you know he doesn't let criticism get to him. He he he's you know he's got that whole like an armoured dinner like placing to make sure that uh, any any uh, carving about his performances you no know, it just doesn't affect them at all. I think in some ways that's the way you've got to be these days. That you just have to you know not care what people think about you and just go on and get and do your own job. Everyone can think what they want. There are these renter gobs, and I call them professional former professional footballers. Who it's, it's an example of what I call as a journalism, as in a double z a as a former United player, as a former yeah, Everton yeah, player. Yeah, yeah. Leon Osman is Everton's token PFPF, and he's really yeah, good. Yeah. It's a scouse voice. He yeah, played yeah. under Moyes for a long time. He knows what makes the club tick. But 
it's a different club now because of Farhad's money and the new stadium that is being built yeah, yeah. At, at the Doch. So my view of Everton is that they are in the lesser six. They're not the richest six, but they're kind of in a bracket with Leicester, Leeds, West Ham, Villa and Southampton and possibly Brighton. Uh, six or seven clubs who will never get relegated, uh, but it'll be very difficult for them to break into the six, especially now Newcastle have been bought by horrific owners. Come on, I agree with Johnny, but I, I think you know, most Everton fans would, would certainly take the view at the moment that you know, success for Everton would be a qualifying for Europe. But I think what the fan base wants most of all is for Everton to actually win some form of cup, be it, you know, the, the Caliber Cup or the FA Cup in the next few years. What did Graham Sharp think when you? signed books with him last Saturday in Liverpool. Did you ask? Well, I, I didn't know, but I, I, and, but I know, you know, you know Graham does a lot of work for the club. He's heavily involved with the former players' foundation. He's a, a, he, he works as a fan ambassador. He, he's a regular at most home games as well. So, you know, like, he, like most of the players from that team that won the league twice in the mid-80s, you know, they, they just look upon the decline of Everson with, with, you know, with, with a degree of bewilderment and frustration. And I think there's still a feeling amongst the players of that era that you know, where did it go wrong? Why did it go wrong? What do you think that the players of the Forgotten Champions team of 86-87, which is the subject of your book, do they look back more annoyed that they couldn't test themselves in European competition without going to Rangers or Spain, or the wage packets that meant they had to work after they retired from playing? There's probably uh, two elements to that answer, I'd say, Johnny. I mean, certainly, I interviewed you know, Paul Power, I interviewed Kevin Ratcliffe, I interviewed Adam Harper, and certainly they felt that an opportunity had been taken away from them by the European band. You know, they, were, they were still kind of bewildered by the fact that you know, it was quite ironic that Everson fans had been praised for their outstandingly good behaviour in Rostam for the Cup Winners' Cup final, and yet through no fault of their own, they find themselves banned from European competition. But I think any player, you want, you want to test yourself against the best players, and so, you know, not to be denied, a, a certain group from, the, from that team would be denied the opportunity twice in 84, 85, and again in 86, 87. So, yeah, it, it was a huge source of frustration, too. And obviously, the, the, the money element was always there because I, I think, as a reference in the boot, it was in the case that Liverpool paid their players better than Everson. Everson weren't the best pay, wage payers in the Football League at that time. And I think that, that was certainly a bit of an issue with some of the players, but it became more of an issue when Kendall left and after Colin Harvey's kind of first season. When he brought the following summer, he spent mega bucks on the likes of uh, Tony Cossey, Pat Nevin, Stuart McCall, Neil McDonald's. And those new players that were coming in were earning considerably more than the players who were there at the club previously. Which disrupted and those the dressing room. It did, yeah. I mean, Kevin Ratchet made that quite clear to me that, you know, there was, there was a definite division between the new players who were coming in who had, had not won anything with the club, who were on inflated salaries compared to the ones that they'd had and because Kendall had left and the Everson's first season under Harvey being quite underwhelming there was a feeling that Everson would now have to pay higher wages to attract players whereas you know, if we'd uh, if Kendall maybe had still been in charge and we'd been involved in Europe you know, it would be more the case that players would be wanting to join us I, th- I think there's just a feeling at the time that Everson would have club on the decline which is such a shame. And Simon Hart has written this book, which is printed in very, very small font. And I love yeah. Simon. I worked for a major European football organization's media team, um, news desk. I worked on the news desk for a bit. And so I would process Simon's coverage of Man City. But this book, Here We Go, 
Fantastic book. The font is so small. And I'm 33, so if I can't read it, God knows if you, who was double my age, um, can read it. I actually have the hardback version when it first came out, Johnny, so that was an issue for me. It wasn't, so the hardback is bigger font. Oh, I've seen the paperback. It looks like the hardback that's been chunked in the wash. Yeah, I'm, I'm, just... I'm going to have to use one of those kind of nays kind of... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, my site is really good, which is annoying. Uh, but Simon has covered this. Jim Keoghan has covered it. Cheer up, Peter Reed. Um, I haven't yeah, read it which, yet, but I know he's... Uh, he... it's, it's an excellent book, that one. Well, he's lovely in his social media interaction. If I bumped into him or played golf with him, I bet I'd have a really good yeah. afternoon. Peter Reid, unfortunately, injured for a lot of that season. Did he get a medal? He did, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean the requirement was you have to play 10 league games that season. And Howard Kendall kind of made sure that anyone who was on nine games after we won the league, we had one final game at home against Tottenham. Uh, so he made sure that those players, I think Derek Malfield was one, to make sure he got 10 appearances. Pat Van der Howe was another one who made ten, who made 11 appearances, 10 appearances. So he, he made sure that everyone who was within the realms of guess, guessing a medal would get would receive one. I think Peter Reid last season actually played about 15 games. So that, you know, from when he came back in in January, there was no question that he wouldn't get a medal provided he won the title. Uh, but you know, as I twisted upon in the book, there was a stage when he came back from injury where Kendall was on the verge of dropping before the Arsenal came, basically saying, look, you know, yeah, just having the heights that you know we you know we do when you play for this club. If you keep on playing like this, I'm gonna to have to replace you. And he had Alan Harper who could slosh into that role seamlessly, ready to take his place. So but the pep talk worked and then Peter B's his game came back to where it should be and where he wants it to be. Yeah. Um and we'll get to some of the players mentioned. I do want to direct the listeners' attention towards the book's stag do. <laughs> which went out just on Monday. I love it as described as that. And it was such a lovely conversation between you, Stu Horstfield, Jeff Goulding and Stephen Scragg. Um, you get kind of a Chelsea fan, a Liverpool fan, an Everton fan and a neutral all wandering into a show. And there's a lot of information about plastic pitches there that Stu is very keen to ask about. So I will frame that within this question. Johnny Nick, John Nicholson of Football 365 has just published a book asking if football was better in the old days. Can you make the case for that premise using the 86-7 season of Everton actually winning the league? The last time they did so, can you make the case that football was better in the old days? I can, but I mean, I, I'm not one of these people who sits there saying, oh, God, you know, football's far better when I was growing up. When I was lad, you know, it was far better thing to watch because in some ways, modern football is so much better. I mean, in terms of quality of pictures, yeah, in terms yeah, of yeah, quality yeah. of stadium, no one argues. Yeah, yeah. The whole match, yeah, the whole match going experience is so far removed from what it was like in 86, 87. Having said that, you know, on, on the positive side, you know, the cost of watching football was within the reach of most people, you know. I didn't need to be a part of a membership scheme. I didn't need to have a credit check to make sure I could buy a ticket. If I wanted to go to an away game on a Saturday morning, I'd ring a few friends. Hey, fancy going down to Ville? Yeah, me and me and so on 11 o'clock. You drive down there, pay your money, go in your way, and absolutely no problem whatsoever. So, in terms, I mean, to go to a football match in the Premier League these days requires requires a bit of advanced planning to make sure you got the ticket in time, to make sure you got all the documentation, etc. So certainly watching football in the 80s, there was none of that. It was much more... It was much more impromptu. You could just suddenly decide you felt like it, you know, we'll go and watch this away game. And there's no problem with that. I would say it was a lot more competitive that, you know, the most teams in the 80s and 70s, stars in the season, were a reasonably genuine hope that they were going to be title contenders. And I think that that's kind of gone out the window a little bit 
with the Premier League. And I think one thing that was definitely uh, was better at that time is the relationship between fans and the players because you were just a lot closer to the players than what you are now. The players were much more accessible. They were much more happy to speak to fans. If they gave a statement about a game, it was always generally from the heart. It wasn't put up by a media company or some guy who was in charge of their Twitter account. And even when you read the match day programs in that era, some of the comments the players would make uh, about things that got gone off the pitch on the coach journey home would never get past the media team now. So there was more of an openness about football in that era as well. And there was definitely you know, a feeling that you know, it would not be unusual in the 80s, say, I was saying, there was one game in the East. Me and a couple of friends, we'd be gone for, I think on Saturday evening after our Everton home game. And at 10 o'clock, you know, about five of the Everton team come in and we were out for a few drinks with the friends. You know, no one hassled them. But they were surrounded by people. They just sat in the corner, did not chew, exchanged a few words at the bar, but there was no antagonism. Uh, and you just wouldn't get that now because you know, the football, you know, at that time, the football was tended to live in the town of the team they were playing in. Now, you know, most players you know, in the northwest will live in a hole on the edge or Willslow or somewhere like that, you know, in a gated community far removed from, from their fan base. So I think that that, that closeness, that, that, that intimacy between the fans and the players in the 80s was of a level that you, you, you couldn't imagine now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Watford play Liverpool, uh, as this goes out tomorrow... On BT Sport, it costs Watford fans who don't have a season ticket about £40 for a good seat. How much was your season ticket for 21 First Division games in 1986-7? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was just absolutely ridiculously cheap, Johnny. I, I, I think it, it could end up being sort of in the region of £55, something like that. The, card, the card says 45 if you for a terrace. If you want a seat, yeah. it was 89 yeah, incredibly good value. And yeah, I think the, the match they missed on the day, if you turned up, you know, it was just £2.50 to get into what's a top quality first division game you know, between some really top quality sides. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the cost of watching football is, is, is just going to astronomically inflate. And uh, certainly, one of the great things, when I reflect back to 86, 87, one of the things quite noticeable compared to the modern day football fan is the fact that the fan base was so much younger. There was a preponderance of fans who were like 35 and under who'd be following the team home and away every week. You know, when I go to Goodison Park these days, and the club's quite good in encouraging more younger people to watch the club in terms of their ticketing policy, but it's overwhelmingly guys 40 plus who are watching the game. Uh, so I think it, it was certainly more accessible to people in the 80s. The pricing was far more accessible. And uh, I, I do worry about the next generation of fans potential fans coming through who, if you get out of the habit of watching football from an early age, maybe it's hard to get back into it, I'm not quite sure. Well, it's a TV show. Football at the elite level is a TV show and uh, sports washing. We know this. Which is why it's so oh, yeah. crucial to go to your local team. It's just a real shame that my local football team is one of the 20 competing <laughs> in this Premier League. Obviously, we'll go down this year, dilly-ding, we're hopeless. But... Um, yeah. I, I could go to oh, St Albans and it's like 18 quid and that money goes towards Tom Bender and other players yeah. of that team. Tom is the captain. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm a similar to you, Johnny, because I live about five minutes more from Marine FC's ground oh, and yeah. the last season. And I'm also a season ticket holder of Marine as well as an Everton season ticket holder. And, and because quite often now, because of the television schedules, the, the whole matches don't clash that often. So um, and Marine often play, end up playing 
games at home midweek but it's great having that contact with your local team as well and it's also good seeing see ex-academy players in Madison who maybe didn't make it to the club turning up from Marine a few years a few years later you know, and still showing that level of skill I agree totally you know I think the link with your local club is really really important and I, you know, I do worry that I remember uh, when the Premier League first started it's the first time that it happened to me arguing with some kids in my class who were saying they were Liverpool fans but they never went to the game and I was like well you can't be a fan if you don't go to the game but then there was nobody watching on the TV we're fans we're just as much as fans you don't need this as you go will you watch on the TV and I think no that, 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 that's not right you, you have to go watch the team you can't be a fan you actually go watch the team uh, maybe no. I, I know I'm a much divided legacy fan these days but that is still my viewpoint there is there is no distinction in the football library between the legacy fan and the modern day <laughs> social media Arsenal fan TV fan. Everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others. Maureen, uh, I watched that game against Spurs. Were you there? Well, no, because it was COVID times, wasn't it? So I mean, we, 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 there was no fans allowed in the stadium. Well, were you allowed we to out? clap the Tottenham bus down the road? Well, it's one of these bizarre things, isn't it, Johnny? So you know, I think. Uh, on the day of this whole early was you know, a, a whole bubble of excitement. So we had we had we had my friend's son outside the hotel where Tottenham was, was staying, messenger stuff. The coach had just left the hotel now, so being Crosby in fifteen minutes. So we went down to see if the coaches survive. There must have been, I would say, between one thousand and two thousand people there lying in the streets outside the stadium and there was no police presence whatsoever. Yeah. And then suddenly before the coaches arrived, the police turned up. And we're chatting to one of the police officers, and he said, yeah. he said, so, well, how come there's been no police here? And, like, like Crosby has a reputation of being a bit of a middle-class area. And they, he said, well, our chief constable told us that because it was in Crosby, the, the population there wouldn't allow COVID regulations, so there won't be anybody outside the ground. Ah. I mean, how, naive, how naive can you get? Interesting. And what did Marine do with all this money? Didn't they say they were building a training ground or fixing <laughs> some leaks or building a, an away dressing room? What did they do with it? Yeah, I think that the main plan was to invest in in a, in a, a 3G, you know, or whether it's technology, you know, an improved version of the dreaded plastic pictures, which didn't go down too well with all elements of the fan base, but they were pushing the fact that it meant the stage could be used you know, by, the, by the community uh, you know, more frequently. Uh, but then that kind of fell through this summer for some reason, that the, the, the cost that they've been given to prove that to be larger than what they were anticipating. So they made a number of improvements to the actual stadium itself, so the watching experience has improved. They've made massive improvements to the social facilities, and, and, yeah. and it's a much more community-accessible club now than what it's been in the past. And it welcomes Hollywood this weekend, because it's the fourth it qualifying round of the FA Cup. Uh, are, are they expected to be there? Do you reckon Ryan Reynolds is going to fly in to Crosby? Well, well I think I think most Premier fans can't hope to land on the pitch in this helicopter, but we'll have to, have, to, have to wait and see when that happens. But Rex have been given 300 tickets for the game. The capacity for the game is 2,100. But from my point of view, this is a perfect football weekend because I have tickets for the Rex game on Saturday and I've got the Everton West Ham game on the Sunday and the Sun's got tickets for both as well. Uh, and my wife, so yeah, brilliant. It's a, the perfect football weekend for us. That is brilliant. And I've just looked at the Isthmian Northern West Division. Marine have won eight of their 10 games have two games in hand on Workington and a do, and of course have won all these games in the Cup. Uh, City yeah, of Liverpool yeah. FC, desperately mid-table, Ramsbottom, Clitheroe, Mossley, Workington. God, what a lovely league. I should come up there. 
to see it. And that will feed the Isthmian Prem? Yeah, that's right, yeah. It fits the Titans, the, the Evo State Prem. Yeah, from yeah, which, yeah, from yeah, which no, Marine were relegated last season. It was two seasons ago, I think, Johnny. Uh, oh, okay. oh, because of the, the Farago? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Because of COVID, basically, the league's been suspended for the best part of two seasons, yeah. Yeah, gosh. I get, and that is so vital. I mean, we haven't got space here to discuss the football pyramid, but... Mon the Marine, I don't know what they shout there, but Marine is a great word to say in your accent. It is. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, come, it's come on the Mariners tends to be the, uh, the, the chance. Ah, uh, OK. Well, come on the Mariners. And come on, um, <laughs> uh, come on St Albans City, who go away to Corinthian Casuals this weekend. And if uh, St Albans and Marine win, they'll be in the draw for the first round proper in November. And uh, I would love to get some of those first round proper matches. Uh, Let's do a quiz to kind of rattle our way through some things that you can read about in the Forgotten Champions, this book that we're notionally here to discuss, but we're freewheeling in the football library here. By the way, who do you want on your football library card? Which former Everton player or executive chairman do you want? Really tough question, that, Johnny. Uh, I think, realistically... uh... From that team, eighty six, eighty seven. I, I think you, you have to look at if it, if it were referring to the season specifically, the obvious candidates are people like Neville Southall, etc. But I would take the view in terms of who played the most games that season. The, the only person who played forty two games was Kevin Ratcliffe. Now, obviously, he'd won eighty four, eighty five. The one I'd have a card for is Paul Power because he came in at age thirty two. He played forty games that season for Everson, and his contribution to the success that season, when most fans derided his signing and couldn't understand why we bought him, he was the man I think because he slotted in a left back to cover Van den Hout. He moved forward to left side midfield. That allowed Kevin Sheedy to operate in the centre midfield, which lots of us still think is his best position. So Paul Power's contribution to that side that season, it was immense. And if, if we're talking specifically 86-87, I'd go for Paul Power. And I think that's a reference in the book there as well. The absence of Paul's is that season, those of the joint player of the year alongside Kevin Ratcliffe. Oh, wicked. Paul will be familiar with books because he is a... He has a law degree. He, he's technically a lawyer still. He went to Leeds Polytechnic, which I think is now Leeds Beckett University. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, because his mother said he had to have a professional career to fall back on in his football and career. It didn't work out. So he studied in Leeds on Monday to Friday and come back home and play for Man City at the weekends. I will have to talk to him because I'm writing a book about the FA Youth Cup and I think Paul Power won it with Man City. There, there was a real generation of players that came through at the time when Paul Power was there. Uh, but yeah, but when I spoke to him, I mean, what an articulate guy. And yet, yeah, certainly gave you... When I chose players to interview for the boot, I wanted Ratcliffe because he was the captain and he was the link between 84 and 85 and 86, 87. I wanted Alan Harbour because although he'd been part of the 84 and 85 team, he wasn't a regular starter. So... He played a key role in 86-87 because he slotted into so many positions that kept the season on track. But I also want to speak to Paul Powell because he was the outsider who came in. So his perspective of what he thought about Everson and Howard Kendall as a manager would have been different to what Anne Harbour and Kevin Ratcliffe would have, would have offered as well. So it, it was really it was intriguing to listen to Paul's insights and how different he found life at Everson compared to his experiences at Manchester City previously. And bearing in mind, he played on the managers such as Malcolm Allison, Billy McNeil, John Bond. It was really interesting to see his comparison between them and Howard Kendall. It is interesting. One of the things I want to write about in my novel, which is the most pretentious thing I've ever said, but it's about um, the workplace. The football 
dressing room and the training ground is a workplace. And so you need the right kind of group. And the, the starkest moment of the book that you've written is when Everton are knocked out of the FA Cup by Wimbledon. The fans are very unhappy. And Howard Kendall says, right, tomorrow, get to the Chinese restaurant. If you're not there, you're fined. Obviously, it helped because they didn't lose. They got a point against Man U immediately afterwards. But the kind of team ethic, you talk about the drinking culture, which was good for the togetherness. It was a good group. And Kendall needed to bring in good members to the group. There were a couple who just didn't fit in. Uh, who were the two that you mentioned? Um, Aspinall, who was gone within a year. And was it Langley who went within six months and played about 16 games? Yeah, I mean, I mean Kevin Langley, uh, you know, th- th- there's a story that's been written about his contributions to football because he, he ended up being like, to make, I think he's the record appearance holder for Wigan Athletic. 86-87, he achieved a unique double of winning a league title winner's medal with Everson and being relegated to Manchester City, which Amazing. I was struggling thinking that anybody else has done that since. No, no, but no. at the start of that season, 86-87, the plan was never for Langley to start games. Kendall wants to keep in the reserves because you saw potential in it, but didn't quite seem to be ready for the first team. But because both Peter Reed and Paul Bracewell have been integral to the championship, the title winning team in 85 were injured, he had very few midfield options. So he threw Langley in. And maybe it was youth enthusiasm. Maybe you know, he, he wanted to seize the opportunity. I'm not quite sure, but certainly for the first seven or eight games, he played really, really well. He, he set up goals. He scored a few for himself, and he was looking like some prospect. And then suddenly, it just kind of started to deteriorate. He starts getting caught in possession. His passing became very slipshod, and fans kind of picked up on this. And he played 16 games on interrupters played the Merseyside derby and then never played for the club again. And no. it's just some story. And Kevin Rafferty said to me that he always regretted the way Langley was treated because he felt he should have been dropped for a few games, given the chance to recover himself. But at that time, Everton had no other option in midfield, so they had to play him, even though he was painting out of form and needed a break. And he just kind of never recovered. He lost his confidence. I think that Kevin Rappler said Langley wasn't the most confident of guys. So if his confidence was, you know, he would really struggle to get that back. But yeah, he was um, his contribution to the team you know, was appreciated. But he's someone like if you mentioned to the average Everton fan, have you heard of Kevin Langley? The answer would be no. I think you've done really well because I'm sure Simon Hart mentions him in his book. Uh, by the way, your book published by Pitch. Uh, the font size is great. The cover is great. Uh, how's it? Been, how's the reaction been for the first few weeks that it's been out? Well, you, you know, it's like yourself, John, because you, you've been through this process before, so you, you, you put the book out there. You're never quite sure how it's going to be received. I, I, I've been overwhelmed with the reception so far. I mean, I, I did the book signing with um, with Graham Sharp at the weekend, and uh, we. we the shop sold out. I think it all the 50, copy, 50 copies. They've gone within 45 minutes. People come to see Graham Sharp, not me, but I, I, either way, the, the book was selling. In terms of the Amazon charts, it's been top of the Amazon bestsellers now for, for the best part of two weeks. Uh, I've, I've had some really positive reviews from people who, who've read the book. And it was, always, it was always my intention. I'd watched a Howard's Way film, and I love the film. But the 86-87 title win was like an afterthought at the end. They got about you know, two or three minutes coverage. I don't understand why that was, because Rob wanted to focus on the 84-85 season. But it, it, it kind of set a train of thoughts in my mind that, you know, um, surely 
this team was our last ever team to win a title, deserves some kind of a record to be recorded of that achievement. So that was my intention in writing the book to kind of bring this team back to its rightful place in history. I mean, Rob Sloan directed the Howard's Way film with that intention of the 84 and 85 team. This was my intention for the 86, 87 team. So, you know, I, I, and what I would say about the book is you may or may not agree with this is it's not just about Everson, it's about watching football in the 80s, so you don't have to be an Everson fan, I don't think, to, yeah. to get something from reading this book, because if you want an insight to what it was like watching football in the 80s, what it was like going to the pub in the 80s, what it was like with licensing laws in the 80s, what it was like with, with you know, Easter TV programmes over the weekend in the 80s, I, I hope I've given a bit of insight into what 80s lifestyle was like at that time as well. Yep, it's fantastic, you can smell the shoulder pads. What did the 80s <laughs> smell like? What did 87 smell like? I think I, I kind of hinted this. I mean, Liverpool have been through quite a, a dark time in the, the mid 80s in terms of all the mass you know, redundancies and things. And the portrayal of Liverpool in the 80s, you know, certainly, although the black stuff was a, a fascinating TV series, it, it certainly didn't do the TV, uh, the city any favours in terms of how it was perceived outside of the city. But I think by 86, 87, there were the first signs that, you know, the city was coming back a bit more. You know, I think I mentioned the booth that, that Sainsbury's opened the store, two stores in Liverpool. Now, for Sainsbury's to, you know, you know, to open Liverpool was a bit of a statement, really, that they felt there was a definite market there. For me personally at that time, I mean, uh, myself and most of my friends, we were all like working in the public service, you know, uh, uh, civil service, teaching, things like that. So all the massive policies things didn't particularly affect us, you know, because we were still we we were still earning money, we, we were in safe jobs. So our kind of you know experience of Liverpool at that time might not be a typical Liverpool experience, but there was a definite feeling that the city was starting to improve, and you know, there were a few more options opening in terms you know bars, restaurants, etc. In the city centre, so there was just a sign there that you know things were starting to pick up the ACs compared to how they'd been at the start of the decade. And it, it certainly takes me back there. Thank you for writing this book. Uh, we will whip through some quick-fire quiz questions. Really want to see those fingers. By the way, Bob Mortimer is your rival at the moment. Bob Mortimer sold 15,000 hardback copies of his book. Will you be buying Bob Mortimer's book, Famous Borough Fan? Well, I, I, I do like Bob Mortimer. Uh, I, I often enjoy his appearance on Would I Like to You as well. And uh, I've, I've read some of the serialisation of it and... In fact, he was my rival last week because outside the bookshop in Crosby, where I was doing the book sign, his book was also being pushed heavily as mm-hmm. well. So, we, we, so uh, obviously, uh, I'd love to get anywhere close to his number of sales. It could be something I might suggest to people that they might want to buy me for, for Christmas. And uh, you know, I've, I've always had quite, always quite had the affinity with Teesside and, and Middlesbrough. So, uh, yeah, I'd be quite interested to read that. Middlesbrough in 1986, the football team taken over by Steve Gibson. They had to dissolve, and that's why they're called Middlesbrough 86. That's the name of the, the company. Yeah. What, were no, what was nobody on the terraces wearing at Everton in 1986? Uh, yeah, do, 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 do back to your previous question. Very good, yeah. yes, but they significantly something that was being made locally. Oh, I mean, at, at the time, I mean, there was a local jeans company called Flemings who used to used to be thought they like the jeans of choice in, in the late 70s, but they kind of gone by then. Uh, I mean, the, the kind of outfit then in, in the mid-80s for most people was, if you were like under the age of 25, it would be like a, a Benetton t-shirt, scally haircut with the long with the long locks at the back, uh, 
pair of jeans, pair of Deodora trainers, something like that. Uh, that, 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 that was kind of mm-hmm. what, what most people were wearing at the time. But significantly, no one wore replica shirts. It was only in kind of that later era of the 80s that people started, apparently. When you look at the, the advertising for replica shirts... It was, aimed at, it was aimed at young boys, and, and, and the, the, the marketing was designed to get young boys to buy the whole kit rather than just the shirt itself. So if you looked at the programme from that season, the models who were exhibiting the kit, the adults tend to be wearing tracksuits with the Everton label on. Uh, young boys would be seen wearing the full Everton kit. Young girl would be seen wearing an Everton T-shirt or training top, and the mother or female would be wearing this hideous NFL-type Everson top with the words Everson 87 and blazed across the front of it. So, yeah, that, that, that's a really good point. That you know, mm. uh, There were very few fans who would wear replica shirts for, for games at that time. And even trying to buy a replica shirt at that time wasn't that easy. Uh, I think you know, maybe by 86, 87 was the first kind of size that people were, were buying them. But you wouldn't wear them for the match particularly. And I think I mentioned what an article wrote for these football times a while ago that my first memory of seeing fans wear replica shirts at Goodison Park was the 1966 World Cup because all the Brazil supporters wore their yellow Brazil shirts. But I was really like, wow, that looks so good. Why aren't we doing this here? Mm. What football tournament did you describe as lamentable? <laughs> Choice of two. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah, which uh, I didn't know this. For the top six teams, you quite rightly say there's no video of the Screen Sports Super Cup best moments. Uh, rounding to the nearest thousand, how many people went to Anfield for the Merseyside derby in that tournament? About 20,000, I think. Yeah, 20,000. And in the match between Everton and Liverpool for the Charity Shield, who won? Neither one because the, the, it was shared as a one or two, and the, the format at the time was there's was no penalties used out. The two teams shared the trophies for six months. The city, what well, I must just get this store. I tell you what, I'll leave that in just because it proves that I have ordered some books for the football library. Uh, including Mike Calvin's uh, State of Play, yeah. I think, and several yeah. more. And so it's always a risk when you uh, do a recording. I always like to do it at either 11 or 2, so people can have yeah. breakfast or lunch. Uh, so yeah, we, yeah. I was going to ask you, who missed the birth of his child on Boxing Day? Yeah, well, that would be Dave Watson. That was quite a common occurrence at that time that the players were expected you know, not to be there for the birth of their child if the team was playing, because the priority then was the team not the family commitments. I, I'm sure it was a situation that they did not want to be in, but at the time, the expectation was that, you know, if your wife was given birth, well, you could hang around for five hours, you had to deliver, get, get your kids on, get back up and play the game. Yeah, it was a shame, but what a great win uh, against Newcastle, the Newcastle team of the 80s. You also went to an away game at Loftus Road. What mode of transport did you use? Yeah, well, I think, as I outlined in the book itself, so at, at that time... If you're a fan going to an away game, you could drive on your own steam. You could get the match special British Rail carriage, which was always some decrepit, some decrepit uh, mode of transport that would break down somewhere. Or you could get the coach. Now, the coach travel experience wasn't that fun, really. It tends to be an old rickety bone shaker. But this company near Goodison Park called Barles Travel had this idea that there might be a group of fans who are prepared to pay a little bit extra 
for, for traveling to away games with a degree of compass and luxury. So they brought out this range of executive coaches where you paid a few pounds more, but they were, they were sleek, state-of-the-art, modern, double-decker coaches. They had toilets, they had videos, and they, they, you know, they became the transports of choice if you didn't want to go... If you didn't want to use your own car, so way matches. So for the QPR game, you know, we, we messed up, I think, 9 o'clock in the morning. I went down with my friend there, Bars, and uh, three hours later, we're at QPR because you didn't have to stop at the service station because the coach had toilets on board. So it, it, it was just a revelation. And we, we were back over Liverpool after the game at 9 o'clock. So, yeah, but Bars travelled. It was a revelation at the time because suddenly you saw that, you know, Hey, you know, if you treat football fans with respect, you know, if you offer them a degree of comfort and service, they'll pay the extra. They'll pay the extra money for that. Mm. The Everton side were all British, bar one player. Who was it? All British, bar one player. Yeah, Van der Ham. Oh, oh, yes, I, I have got that wrong. You're quite right. Kevin Sheedy was what's on the card. But, <laughs> yeah. So, but all but all but I think psychopath is honorary scouse, isn't he? He was born in Dendermond, uh, uh, Belgium, and, and uh, I did a program with the Everton in the Community Scheme about three years Award ago. Award-winning Everton in the Community it, Scheme. It is, it is, and Pat Van der Howe was one of our coaches on the scheme. He, he took us for walking football, and we used to chat to him at the end of the sessions. Oh, what a guy. I mean, he, he's an actual-born storyteller. But, you know, occasionally, even in walking football, if he gave you the stare after the tackle, you, you didn't go anywhere near him again because he, he, just, he just looked so scary. And, I mean, Pat's a one-off. If you've not read his book, I'd highly recommend reading it. But he, he's just a fond of stories and tales, and he, you know, he owns grudges against lots of people. And, uh, yeah, and I think, you know, the club did a really good job in kind of rescuing him from his lifestyle in South Africa because I think he was on his office in South Africa. The advisement to come back and be involved in the community, and he strived under that role. And for people of my age to be part of the how is always a huge and massive privilege. Yes, that book is in the football library along with the Forgotten Champions. Whom did Stephen Scragg call the most Liverpool of Everton players? Trevor Stephen. Trevor Stephen, absolutely right. Um, and I would love to discuss that more, but Liverpool, we don't discuss Liverpool. Uh, well, well, yeah, well, I don't, this could run and run and run. Um, however, who uh, was signed in January and is described as a quicker version of Peter Reid? Yeah, that'll be Ian Snowden. Ian Snowden, you can read about him in the book. Uh, and whose younger brother signed for Everton? Yeah, that'll be Anna Clark's younger brother, as in Wayne Clark, and uh, as I think I outlined in the book as well, that uh, Wayne Clark was one of the two players Neville Saffold hated facing and training because he never knew where he was going to put the ball. And who was the other? The one and only Kevin Sheedy. Ah, wonderful. Um, what couldn't you do between 2pm and 7pm in 1987 on Sundays? Of course, we were still... In the 1980s, trying to win the First World War, so we were still subject to the, uh, you know, the, the defence of the, 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 the defence of the realm. Stipulations yeah. on defence of the realm act. We spent the pubs had to close between two o'clock on Sunday and couldn't be open until so seven o'clock. That is why everyone stayed at home and watched war movies on Sunday afternoons because there was nothing else to do. No, there wasn't. I, I think you know, that. Um, when the BBC first started transmitting live football on a Sunday afternoon, for most fans, it just jarred with their routine because, you know, when you came out of the match at the end of the game at five o'clock, the pubs weren't open. There were two hours until when the pubs opened. So most supporters found that really a real change to their, to their social routine that they, they found hard to adjust to. Uh, and, it, it, yeah, I mean, 
for, for those who have grown up since the license and laws have been relaxed, you can't, you, know, you can't even begin to imagine how ridiculously complicated and stringent those license and laws were. Again, one for Johnny Nick to argue about football being better in the old days. What is a natural personality trait of any Everton fan? Pessimism. Pessimism. Uh, whom do you describe of smirking, self-satisfied and gloating? <laughs> I, think, I think there's a, 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 a few. Please <laughs> name them. No, <laughs> I don't want you to do that. <laughs> Are you still in touch with all these people you used to work with at, uh, at school who were Liverpool fans? Yeah, I am. Um, so the fans were a lot closer in the mid-80s than what they are now. Uh, a lot, lot, lot more links between them. But yeah, there, there was certainly, um, during that age, six, eight, seven, a lot of antipathy between uh, us Reds and us Blues in the staff room. And as I, I said there, uh, you know, I just kept out the staff room for the weeks. I only hit somebody by the end of the week and I really didn't want to do that at that stage of my career. I can still argue that's still a trait of a lot of those supporters of that club today. Is it fair to say that as in 1992 when Man United lost the first division, that Liverpool lost the first division title, 86-87? Absolutely no. And if you look at this, the quote there from David Lacey about that season, I think he says something along the lines of, Everson produced two match-winning sequences over Christmas and Easter to lift the title. No no other club could produce more than one. That's why Everton won the title. And into this charge that Liverpool threw the title away rather than we won it. Everton's last 12 games that season, we won 10, drew 1, lost 1. I think the league was totally deserved and we won it totally on merit. And I think what Liverpool found in that season as well was we struggled desperately with injuries at the start of the campaign but found a way to overcome those injuries. Liverpool had a few injuries themselves in the second half of the season and they couldn't find a method of overcoming those injuries to keep themselves in contention. And my one big regret from that season, which I definitely <laughs> highlight in the book, is that we had the chance of winning the league title at Anfield and what a joy that would have been and what payback that would have been for the previous season. Yes, quite right. Um, Everton losing one of 17 at the end of the season. Which, and you, you document this with the league tables, like Sky Sports style um, season review in, in your book, which concludes with this. Crowds spilled outside onto the pavements, beer in hand, dancing and singing, bringing the traffic to a halt. Inside the bars, people were standing on tables. I, like everyone else, hopped from one pub on County Road to another, sampling and savouring the different ambiences in each venue, the Harlech. The Chepster, the Queen's Arms, the Netley, among others, as blues of all generations partied like it was 1999. I was getting married that summer. And by the end of the evening, I'm sure I must have invited at least a thousand people, most of whom I'd never met before, to the reception. It was like reliving a whole season in one evening. Wow. How did the wedding compare to that? And if Janet is listening, he's about to tell a fib. Suitable gap between the, the end of the season celebration and the, and the wedding. I got married in the August that year, uh, so obviously you, you're talking two different events here. You, you, you're talking two different experiences, and, and both were equally fully enjoyable in their own different ways. Good diplomatic answer. Um, I haven't asked you one of the key questions. Video killed the utility man, but one of the things that. Uh, happens in the 80s is that these small squads mean that defenders have to play in midfield and attack. Alan Harper played as a 2, 6, 7, 8 and 10. He's the utility man. And my final question is, what is Adrian Heath doing now? 
but he's, he's managing in the in the US, isn't he? He got his team through to the uh, to, to the to the final last year, I think, of, of the uh, major league major soccer league playoffs. Uh, so he's actually established himself as a, a as a top top rated coach over there, and uh, I'm really happy for, for his success. Is it Minnesota? Minnesota. Yeah, I wasn't going to push you, yeah. but yeah. You are true blue. That's the kind of thing that true blues we know. Kevin Langley, where Adrian Heath is managing. And this book is, it's a love letter, as as most people say when you write a book about the club you love. But it's magnificent. Thank you so much for writing it. It's much better than it should be, you know? I mean, there are people who do books that are chronicles of a season, Paul McParlin, and this is one of the best. And it's because... You bleed blue, which is worrying. But um, it was Everton's last title, 86, 87. Uh, I just wanted to pick up on one thing that uh, comes up in the discussion with the These Football Times crew, um, It's with um, which is available at These Football Times. Uh, go to the... I can't get a link, but I will link to it. Uh, and I've got a very quick turnaround for this show because it goes out tomorrow. We're talking on the 14th. Uh, because we oh, are part of Scouse Week. But what you what you say is that the oral history of football has to survive. And so I wanted just to pick you up on that. Because, I mean, you were 30 back then, but there are, for the football of the interwar years has almost gone. The football of the 50s is almost gone. That World Cup era of the 60s, I mean, it doesn't... I don't need to tell you how many of the 66 World Cup squad have gone. Or the others are suffering from dementia. Bobby Charlton turned 84 uh, yeah, at the beginning yeah. of the week. So this oral history side of things, will that interest you as a writer? I know you've got a couple of ideas, but will you be pursuing that? I think the answer is actually would, would be yes, because I, I just think that the oral record of footballing history needs to be needs to be left as a legacy for people because I see, you mentioned that the 66 World Cup, I've watched so many documentaries with talking heads talking about the 66 World Cup as though they were there. Now they're thinking, hang on, I actually saw five of the games in 66. What you're talking about is absolutely rubbish. It, it, it makes no sense whatsoever what you're saying here. And so I think, you know, I mean, in absolute society, you know, records of history tend to be very kind of a middle-class uh, Dominated uh, that, that, that kind of, that's, that's kind of the middle society has access to publishing deals and things. Yeah. I just think it's a it's to me it's so important that stories of fans who went to football matches and you went to that generation there the forties, fifties, sixties just just need to be need to be kept alive. You mentioned about Brian Glanville who's ninety, you know, but struggling mentally, and the, the, there's going to be a, a, you know, a, a number of people who could probably if you called them now and spoke to them now could give you such fantastic insight into the match-going experience of the late 50s, early 60s. And it's, like, it's always one of my huge regrets of when my dad was alive. I didn't speak to him all about watching Everson when he was a kid because that would have been such a, a host of memories that could, could have kept them. He could and maybe use them for some kind of future piece of writing. So, yeah, it's, it's, to me, it's just so important. That What struck me when I was researching this book is Whenever you try to Google things about Everson, all that comes up is Premier League Everson history. You've really got to get behind that and say, actually, football didn't start in 1992. You know, we, were, we were in the first ever league season in 1888. You know, there's a lot of football happened before the Premier League. There's a reason why there are so many kind of limpid, parasitic football websites and Twitter accounts. and I don't like it. It's not for me, Clive. 
And what I prefer is looking back to even the 80s, the era that I missed, and uh, Everton's Forgotten Champions, you have rescued them. Phoenix from the Flames, um, the blue liver birds rise up, and I must visit you at Bramley Dock in a few years' time. Yeah, I mean, we we have high aspirations for Bramley Dock, and it's, uh, it's going to be... It's going to be really good for the city as well because you know, when the cruise ships which are coming back in greater numbers now sail mm. down the Royal Blue Mersey, the first iconic site they will come across is, is the Brownie Mall Stadium. So that, I think that's just perfect location for the club. Given that Everson's history and the city's maritime heritage and tradition. Hear, hear to that, because the sea is not red, it's blue. That's why the ground is on the banks of the Royal Blue Mersey, Johnny. Hey, which puts me in mind of a song. The Forgotten Champions, 86-87, Everton's <laughs> last title. Is it hardback or paperback? I didn't ask. It's hardback, Johnny, yeah. yeah. It, but it's not like a mega-heavy hardback. It's a very concise evening. A paperback-size hardback, if that makes sense. 336 pages must be about 80,000 words. 93,000 words. Hey, you should have made it 87,000 words. It would help me remember. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to look up Adrian Heath's goals from that season on YouTube and uh, I will link this these Football Times interview, which is a proper stag do. Now the book has been birthed <laughs> and uh, it, I think what the great thing about this book is it will appeal to red fans as much as blue. And that is the ultimate compliment. Yeah, and as I said, Johnny, it's not just a book for Everton fans, it's a book for anybody who likes football. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks for having the show. Been fascinating to talk to you. Hope I passed the audition. And uh, it's been a, pleasure, been a pleasure chatting to you about the book. And thanks for sharing it with your followers. I'm sorry. Everton football fans from the 80s are on the way out. Hey, <laughs> hey. Beatle quotes. Just like the library. Just like the library.